Welcome to the podcast of New City Church. We hope this podcast inspires you on your journey of inward and outward transformation. Please join us on Sundays. You can find more information on our website, grownewcity.church. God bless you. Hi, New City. I'm so honored to be uh, preaching for you this morning. And I just want to give you a heads up that this sermon is going to contain references to violence and hate crimes against black and brown people and sex workers. So take care of yourself in the ways that you need to. In the aftermath of Tuesday's massacre of sex workers in Atlanta, words from Revelation 17 and 18 that we just heard, words from the killer's defense, and words I've heard describing my own sexuality and identity as a Chinese American femme have all run together. Sinful, tempting, immoral, fallen, exotic, loose, vile, disgusting, monstrous. I don't have the time or frankly the energy to get into all the ways Asian women and femmes have been exotified, hypersexualized, demonized, and othered in American society, culture, and media. And I truly hope that you've already put some time this week into educating yourself about these things. We've learned since the massacre that the killer saw the Asian women he targeted as a temptation for him that had to be eliminated. Evidently, it wasn't just that he was repulsed by Asian women, He was repulsed by his attraction to them, his unthinkable attraction to that he deemed monstrous. In monster theory, the figure of the monster has been defined as difference made flesh. The monster quite literally incorporates our fears, anxieties, and uncertainties about the world. We fear what we don't know, what we don't understand, what is unlike us, and we deem it monstrous. The monster is a clear signifier of that which is other. According to the logic of empire, the monstrous other is not to be tolerated. So how does empire respond to that which is other? Well, first, it seeks to refuse the other. Before the better known Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, the Page Act of 1875 barred Chinese women from entering the country based on the assumption that most were sex workers. In the words of the law's sponsor, Representative Horace Page, this act was necessary in order to, quote, end the danger of cheap Chinese labor and immoral Chinese women. So empire keeps the other out. It writes the Page Act, and the Chinese Exclusion Act in an attempt to bar Chinese immigrants from entering the country. It erects a wall at our southern border, cages brown children who threaten its American dream of racial purity. It redlines city streets and constructs highways that tear through black neighborhoods. It forces indigenous people into remote ghettos and leaves them without access to resources. When keeping the other out fails, Empire will try another tactic to commodify the other. It opens a Chinese restaurant that markets itself as healthy Chinese food while calling traditional Chinese food greasy and disgusting. It promotes the success of artists, musicians, and influencers who appropriate black culture for their own aesthetic. 
It profits off the sales of native headdresses and dream catchers, while indigenous communities live without running water. It queer baits TV shows and movies to draw a larger audience, while never actually advocating for queer issues. It writes books about anti-racism that top bestseller lists and make millions of dollars for white publishers. When commodifying the other is not enough, Empire will then move to punish the other. It rounds up Japanese Americans and removes them to internment camps. It conducts ice raids at packing plants and factories where undocumented folks struggle to make a living. It instigates a war on drugs to criminalize blackness and to feed the prison industrial complex with black bodies. It tear gases and pepper sprays and arrests people of color protesting against police brutality. Finally, when all else fails to eliminate the threat of the monstrous other, empire must put it to death. So it plants a knee on George Floyd's neck and suffocates him for eight minutes and 46 seconds. It bursts into Breonna Taylor's home in the middle of the night and fires six bullets into her unarmed body. It kills Tony McDade in the parking lot of his apartment complex and then dead names him in the news reports after the fact. It targets Asian American women at the massage parlors where they work and callously murders them. And we see this same deathly logic at work in today's scripture passage. When John describes the Roman Empire as a sultry sex worker, he calls the whore of Babylon. Now, if you've been tracking with our Revelation Reclaimed sermon series so far, you know that the book of Revelation is a diatribe against the Roman Empire. It's been pretty powerful so far to witness the ways that John's incredible use of symbolism in the book of Revelation speaks so profoundly against empire. We've talked about the slaughtered lamb. We've talked about the beast commonly known as the Antichrist. We've talked about the woman clothed with the sun and her rebellious witness. But now we've come to some really problematic imagery, the whore of Babylon, who according to John also goes by Babylon the Great, mother of whores and of earth's abominations. She is portrayed as a brazen prostitute who has committed fornication with the kings of the earth, as well as the merchants of the earth and shipmasters and sailors and tradesmen. Honestly, it sounds to me like our girl's got some game, but John is really not huge on her. He describes her as sinful, impure, an abomination. In a couple of chapters, she goes from living in luxury, clothed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, riding a matching scarlet beast, to utter humiliation and violent destruction. In John's vision, she is stripped naked, her flesh is eaten, and she is burned alive. The description of her downfall is written to elicit a visceral reaction, horror, disgust, and judgment. And John seems to take great delight at her defeat. We hear of her destruction not once, but multiple times throughout the passage, as if John is gleefully replaying her death again and again. This is not okay. 
I mean, I get what John's trying to do here. He has a revenge fantasy against the Roman Empire, which is cool and everything. Fuck the Roman Empire. We all have our revenge fantasies. But at this point, John has become so controlled by his hatred that he has let his revenge fantasy bleed into his rhetoric. He is no longer just dreaming of empire's destruction. Now he is actively demonizing and monstering a sex worker, someone more vulnerable than he, someone already demonized and monstered by the empire. The vitriol contained in this letter will be circulated among the early churches. It will remain a part of the biblical canon and forever haunt those of us who look to scripture for guidance. By now, you've probably heard that the man responsible for the Atlanta massacre identifies as a Christian and an active churchgoer. As I prepared to give this sermon, I couldn't help but wonder how many times he might have read the book of Revelation. How many times he absorbed this violent rhetoric about a foreign woman who is a sex worker. I mean, don't get me wrong, our culture is full of racism and whorephobia. He didn't have to get it from Revelation. But I think it's really important as a church that we collectively acknowledge the ways Christianity has historically played into the logic of empire. See, sometimes our hurt and suffering at the hands of empire can calcify into a knot of hatred and violence. We Christians end up all too easily adopting empire's methods, empire's rhetoric, we end up monsterizing others, whether that's your conservative parents, the person you're debating in the Facebook comments, or yes, Donald Trump. And I get, trust me, I get that suffering and harm inflicted by empire are real. White supremacy, misogyny, ableism, homophobia, and transphobia, all these things have done real, real damage. We can and we should continue to name this. Our anger and fury and tears and mourning are completely valid emotional responses to the harm that we continually endure. But fellow saints, beloved children of God, if we allow hatred to take root in our hearts, we have become just like those we call our enemies. And then what's even the point? Because at the end of the day, the project of empire is to divorce us from the reality of our shared humanity, to set up divisions of us versus them, to allow hatred for the other to consume us alive. Empire ain't playing. The end game of empire is humanity's self-destruction. So how? How do we respond to the other in light of this? How do we counter empire tactics of violence and destruction without being co-opted into its ranks ourselves? How do we navigate the tension between righteous anger and outright violence? I'd like to introduce you to a Korean word I've learned from some friends of mine. And my friend James spent a good amount of time trying to teach me how to pronounce this word and I'm still gonna butcher it but I'll do my best. The word is jung. There's no real equivalent in English, but I've heard jung described as sticky love. Jung is a way of relating to another based on the understanding that fundamentally we are connected, 
you're attached. Psychotherapist Christopher Chung has written about Jung as a Korean way of conceiving relationality that is deeply invested in compassion, love, vulnerability, and acceptance of difference as essential to life. One of the important characteristics of Jung is its location. Jung is located not only inside of our hearts, but also outside, between individuals. In English, it can be difficult to understand an emotion as being seated outside an individual's heart. But in Asian cultures, the idea of collective emotion is rather common. So where in English we would express our feelings by saying things like, I love you, I feel nervous, or I feel depressed. It is less common in Korean to express, I feel jung. Instead, you might hear something like, jung dulda, which means something more like, jung has permeated. An even bolder translation would be, I am possessed by jung. Jung is fundamentally irrational. Its manifestation looks like loyalty and commitment without validation, logic, or reason. Jung has a way of making relationships richly complex by moving away from a binary, oppositional perception of reality, such as oppressor and oppressed. Whereas in English, the word we just represents multiple eyes, in Korean, we often means I bonded by Jung to you. Theologian Wan He An Jo has done a lot of work around the concept of Jung. She describes Jung as a deep sense of bondedness that refuses to accept broken relationship, working instead to transform the very grounds of that relationship through a shared unity. It finds resonance with Black feminist writers like Audre Lorde in its recognition that I am not free until you are free. Jung inspires cries for justice in a suffering-ridden world because it holds fast to the possibility of love and reconciliation even in the most impossible of situations. Poet and activist Kim Chiha, in his poem Chang Ildam, offers a creative retelling of the Christ narrative that exemplifies what Jung looks like in action. In the poem, the protagonist Chang Ildam is a clear Christ figure, a preacher of liberation who is eventually betrayed by one of his disciples and beheaded by the rulers of Seoul. After three days, he rises from the dead and here the story takes an interesting turn. Chang cuts off the head of his betrayer, which has caused him deep harm and places that man's head on his own body and his own head on the betrayer's body. What strikes me about this story is how this example of Jung still involves the recognition and acknowledgement of harm done. There is no passive acceptance of suffering or defeat. Yet Chang's actions fueled by Jung ultimately signify solidarity and bondedness between victim and victimizer. This surprising act is not one of revenge, but one of reunification of true Jung. To the empire of his day, Jesus was a monster. He preached a gospel of Jung that fundamentally refused empire logic. He boldly proclaimed God's reckless love for each one of us, including our enemies. 
He proclaimed a message of radical hospitality and welcome, which earned him the company of other monstrous others, tax collectors and sex workers, Samaritans and lepers. And Jesus's demonstration of Jung was not passing or accepting of suffering and marginalization. His was a Jung that upturned tables in sacred places and enraged those in power. It called on the oppressors of his day to put down their fuckery already and join him at a banquet table lavishly spread for all. So empire responded to Jesus the way it responds to the monstrous. It tried to keep him out, to shut him down, to contain him in his ministry, to punish him. And when all of that failed, ultimately it executed him. What empire could not do, however, is destroy the Jung that Jesus embodied. Jesus's resurrection is a testament to the defiant power of Jung, even in the face of death. This Jung we see in Jesus was rooted in the radical idea of oneness, of interconnectedness between even a man who was executed and those who hung him on the cross. And church, this same power of Jung is made available to us even today, even in the wake of such a horrific tragedy. I had to rewrite the ending to this sermon because I have to admit, I don't feel Jung right now. Not toward Robert Aaron Long, the murderer of the women in Atlanta, not toward the cops who made excuses for his murderous rampage, not for the church that steeped him in toxic purity culture and fed him lies about his sexual desire. I don't feel Jung. But I believe it is there. And I believe that this is our work, church. To discover Jung even in the most impossible of places. To face down the tyranny and evil of empire and to refuse to let it become a part of us to support one another on this journey of learning to love our enemies. And maybe even to witness to the reality of Jung that invites each and every one of us to the banquet table. Amen. <laughs>